The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. All right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would please, and I want you to open them to Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian church, and today we are nearly at the end of our series, this study of um, living in the light of Christ's return, and we're looking at verses 6 through 15 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and I'd like for us to read these verses together and then we will begin a multi-part sermon on order in the church. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse number 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now, them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed." Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, before we tackle this text, there is some background information that will help us to understand the reason that the church at Thessalonica needed correction and restoration to orderly function. Now, if you remember in the beginning of our series, we, we learned that this church was one of Paul's favorites. Uh, they were good Christian people that had grasped the fundamentals of the faith, and they were just dialed in to the apostles' teachings, and they regarded him as God's man that was sent to them to speak to them. The church had grown in the faith. Paul was excited that they had become disciples, that they were followers, and although they were persecuted by the community because of their faith, still they received the word of God with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The apostle remarked how these people had become examples to the surrounding communities of what it means to work in the faith, of what it means to uh, labor in love, what it means to live in the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. But despite Paul's high praise for the church, this church was not immune to church troubles. In every place, in every church, there are people that cause trouble. Now, we are thankful for the ones I just mentioned that never cause trouble. 
But there are people in churches that cause trouble. And if you leave them alone to do what they do, then their sins and their troubles will soon affect, infect the entire congregation. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul dealt with a problem of sin in the church. There was a person in the church who was immoral. And Paul told the church that they must remove this person from their fellowship, lest his sin spread throughout the entire congregation. Now, his instructions in 1 Corinthians are familiar to us. He used Old Testament terminology, and he said, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, so that ye may be a new lump. Now, I know maybe to some of you that sounds a little bit cryptic, but you uh, may just recall what I preached in the sermon a couple of weeks ago uh, before the Lord's Supper. We talked about leaven, and, and in the Scriptures, leaven is a type of sin. Leaven would be the same as yeast that you put in bread dough. When yeast is added to the dough, then you put the lump of dough into the oven. The yeast permeates the dough and the bread begins to rise. And then we say when that has happened, the bread is leavened. That is, the, the, the yeast has permeated the entire loaf and all of it is affected by it. So that's, that's uh, the use of, of leaven here and that's what the Apostle Paul refers to. But perhaps maybe a little bit more familiar to you would be the old saying, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Now, you know that if you go to the store and you buy a bag of apples and one of those apples is rotten, that if you leave it in there, then that rottenness spreads to the rest of the apples and you won't eat any of them. But I think perhaps the uh, an illustration that is far more familiar to all of us right now is the spread of COVID-19. Now, when uh, the the virus first began to uh, affect our country, one of the things they wanted us to do, as you well know, was to stay apart from each other. They even had a stay at, a stay at home order that said for a while they said you can't leave your houses, and we lived with that for a while. And the reason for it is they didn't want households to mix because one infected person can cause many people to be infected. And that's, that's the way that sin affects the church. When sin is unchecked, that sin grows like a, an infectious disease and it spreads throughout the entire congregation. And soon you have a church that is so badly infected and tainted with sin that it loses its effectiveness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because of this, the Lord instructed his apostles about how to deal with sin in the church. Taught his apostles to teach the church that we're not to tolerate sin, but when we see sin in the church, we're to get on that thing post-haste and to get rid of it. And if the person who causes this infection of sin is unrepentant, and that sin becomes too much of reproach on the name of the Lord and on the name of the church, then the scriptures are very clear that drastic measures must be taken to remove that person from the body. Now, we're going to talk about that problem over the next few weeks, and I want to show you what the Bible teaches about sin in the church and about discipline and about how we are to practice discipline for the good of the church body, not just for the good of the body, but also for the good of that person who is involved in serious sin. Now, I promised I would give you some background information, and if you've been with us in our study, you are familiar with this. 
If you just take a moment to look in the first letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and you might just peruse it a little bit, Paul discussed holiness in the church. He discussed sanctification, and he mentioned in that chapter the sin of fornication. Sexual sins are always at the forefront of sins that we are to avoid. Always at the top of the list, almost always at the top of the list of sins that are given in the Bible, sexual sins have the preeminence, it seems. And um, the disciples, the apostles had to discuss with with the churches because of the um, decadence of the Roman Empire in which they lived. Uh, The Romans were just engulfed in severe perversions of sexuality and these perversions were also a part of their their heathen rituals in the worship of idols and so there was always a, a temptation for Christians to slip back into their former lifestyles and Paul taught that this was dangerous and terribly inconsistent with the holiness that is demanded in the scriptures of God's people we are to live in holiness, we, we are to, to honor the Lord with our bodies. And there's much, much said in the scriptures um, about the sins of sexual perversion. Now, be aware that the Bible teaches, and I think you are, that all forms, all forms of sex outside the marriage of one man and one woman are against the church. They are against the scriptures. They are against the Lord Jesus Christ. That means homosexuality. It means transgenderism, gender fluidity, bisexuality, pornography, bestiality, pedophilia. All of these are perversions that are forbidden by the Word of God. Now, another issue that Paul addressed in the fourth chapter of that first letter is just a hint of a growing problem. In the 11th and 12th verses of chapter 4, he wrote, And that ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. The issue was the misunderstanding of the second coming, that it caused some of these Thessalonians to quit their jobs, And to sit down and wait for the Lord to return. Now Paul told them that Christ would come back to deliver them from persecution. But they misread the information to say that Christ was coming in just a few days. Or perhaps in a few weeks. It wouldn't be very long. And so there wasn't any sense of working and gathering and making plans. Because Christ was coming soon to take them away. And so they made the sad mistake of, of... misinterpreting what Paul said. And still today, there are many people that misinterpret the apostle. The Bible certainly does teach that the coming of Christ is imminent, that it could come at any time. It can happen any day, any hour. Christ can come. And we do know the Bible teaches that we are living in the last days. But we've been living in the last days since the resurrection 2,000 years ago. So Christ could come today, but it could be hundreds of years before he comes. Yet the Bible teaches we are to live as though Christ will come today. And at the same time, we are to be working and planning and 
going about our godly lives as if it's still hundreds of years away. But there were a few people in the church that didn't do this. They thought Christ would be there soon, and so they sold all of their stuff, they quit their jobs, they sat down, and they waited. Then after a while, all of their resources dried up. After a while, they ran out of food. After a while, they ran out of money. After a while, they needed shelter and places to live. And these people expected that others in the church would take care of them and support them while they continued to wait and they wouldn't work. And then in the meantime, their idleness while they were waiting turned into harm for the church because they had nothing to do. And they became busybodies, and they spent their time going from house to house, spreading gossip and stirring up trouble. And we all know the saying that idle hands are the devil's workshop. And that is certainly true. If you aren't working and you aren't busy, it won't be long until you are busy stirring up trouble. So this is the reason that Paul wrote verses 11 and 12 in chapter 4. And he said, some of you need to keep your mouth shut. And you need to concern yourselves with your own business and with doing honest work. And if you do that, you will have all you need. Well, we fast forward several weeks and word comes to Paul that there is still trouble. Here is Paul. Now writing a second letter, Second Thessalonians, and the problem in Thessalonica had become a growing problem. And so he must come back to this issue. It, the problem is worsening. It hasn't been corrected. And so now we see him in the 11th verse of chapter 3 telling them, some of you are not working, some of you are disorderly, and you are busy bodies. And because they wouldn't listen and correct the problem, Paul was determined to restore order with drastic measures. Now, there is too much at stake with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to let it be destroyed from within. Now, goodness knows there is plenty of persecution, plenty of opposition from the outside. We certainly don't need the devil's workshop on the inside trying to destroy God's church. It's far more dangerous to have the devil working on the inside of the church than the outside because that's where the demolition of the church occurs more rapidly. Now, persecution from the outside has never destroyed the Lord's churches. We've noticed that. We've talked about that, how down through history, persecution has always been here. And the Word of God says we are to expect that, but persecution never destroyed the church. That's promised to us in Matthew 16, 18. It just can't happen. But there are plenty of churches that are gone and have been destroyed because there was too much sin on the inside among those who are supposed to be God's people. Well, I want to begin our discussion, our our study of order in the church by discussing this. Number one, this is where we're going to spend our time today and some next week. The command for conformity. The command for conformity. There is acceptable behavior in the church and there is unacceptable behavior. There is a way for us to live together and to work together and accomplish God's will together. And then there's a way that all of that can be quickly destroyed. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot work, it does not work, unless there is unity. And I'll go further and say there must be uniformity. That we must all be of the same mind, 
We must have the same goals in mind. We must be decided on the one truth of Jesus Christ. And we must be dedicated to that one truth and especially the morality of that one truth. Now the principles that are set down in this passage, though they go beyond the immediate context of of people who wouldn't work. And we'll discuss the problem, these other problems as we continue. But the principle of discipline and conformity, that goes beyond physical labor to every action and interaction of God's people. And so these are general principles that are just laid down here that we need to abide by. And uh, we, we see them in the context that Paul writes to this church, some general principles. But before I talk to you about general principles, let's just deal with the immediate context of what he says here. Now, in verses 7 through 9, Paul wrote, For yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travailed night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. Now, Paul, Paul's encouragement in these verses is for them to recall how he decided that he would not accept any financial support from these people. Now, as a minister of the gospel, he, he, he's told them, and he said in other places in the scriptures, that he had the right to take offerings from them. He had the right to expect that they would support him. But he didn't, because there were so many religious hucksters that were making their rounds, lying to people and cheating people and stealing from them, that he didn't want to be grouped in with them. So he decided that he would work. He would just separate himself from all of that, and he would just go and go ahead and make his own living without the support of the church. Well, he used himself as an example here. He had to work. If he was going to eat, he had to work because the church wasn't giving him money. And in verse number 10, he said, We've already commanded you that if any will not work, neither should they eat. Now, that is a biblical principle. The able-bodied should work. And the able-bodied should be made to work or not one ounce of help should be given them. Now, I could go on a charade and I could complain that our culture is not a culture of work. People have it in their heads that work is bad, and anything that we can do to get out of work, we should. Uh, On the back of cars, you see, I'd rather be fishing, or I I owe, it's off to work, I go. And the idea is that work is bad, it's torture, and if we could just figure out a way to get rid of it, we would be much better off. Now, you know, politicians feed off of that. They know what people want. If you can feed them, they will support you, right? You know, Paul even said that with the church. He said, or Jesus said it rather, with people that follow him around. He said, you know, you don't follow me for because you want to hear what I have to teach you. You follow me because I'm feeding you. And that's the way politicians are. They give people what they want. They, they feed people. So, you know, you, today you have uh, people that are promoting socialism in our country, Socialism uh, says penalize people that work hard, take their money, and redistribute it to people who won't work and give them free everything. Now, I've spent my life working, uh, trying to get a little bit of return in my old age now from hopefully maybe a year or two or something from 
Social Security and, and uh, the benefit of Medicare. But politicians say, no, we don't respect that effort. Everyone should share in it, even though they have no part or little to contributing to the system. Doesn't matter if you won't work, you should have free health care. Doesn't matter if you put in the time, we're going to take your money and we're going to give it away. And some even say we're going to take what you have and give it to illegal aliens who break the law trying to get into the country. They have the same rights as you have, you that work your fingers to the bone to make this country and your life what you what you've struggled to be, to get to. We're going to take that and we're going to give it to people who just come here from everywhere and just let them have it. Just let them have it. Now, these are the same people who say, that's what Jesus would do. And they would take the scriptures that I read to you earlier in Deuteronomy, and they would apply scriptures like that and say, that's what we ought to do. That's what the Bible says. But it's interesting that their interpretations of the scripture always fit their liberal agenda. I think it's clear in the context that we read here, what should be done about people who will not work. Paul said they are not to eat. Now, did you know that the Bible is against socialism? Everywhere in the scriptures, principles of capitalism are taught. Solomon wrote that even nature understands capitalism. Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 8, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. Even a dumb ant is smarter than a socialist. The ant knows that she will not eat unless she provides or unless she prepares her provisions. You look at that. She, the Bible says she doesn't have a guide. She doesn't have an overseer. She doesn't have a ruler to tell her this. And otherwise, she doesn't have some ignorant politician telling her the rest of the ants will take care of you. Don't worry about it. No, nature... Nature, ruled by Almighty God, tells her what to do. She must provide or she doesn't eat. Now, do you understand this, that in, the, in our heart of hearts, we know this? We really do know this. When honest people were shut out of work all of these months, they wanted nothing but to go back to work. Isn't that right? They just wanted to go back to work, back to work to keep their sanity and to feed their families. I think most of them weren't content to draw unemployment checks. No, they wanted to go back to work. And there was, you know, the commotion and all the protests that were made about the government shutting us up and not letting people go to work. But there are many others who think work is a curse. Now, they're wrong about that because work was not a part of the curse. Adam wasn't cursed with work. No, before Adam ever sinned, God told him to tend the garden. Take care of the garden. Work is good for us, and God knows that. Now, do you know who thought work was bad? Well, you go right back to the context we have here and the culture that that Paul addressed. This is one of the things that the Greeks thought. The Greeks thought that common work was bad. And, and, and you know what that led to? It led to slavery. Somebody must do the work that you don't want to do. And what did Greek idleness do? It made them wicked people. It gave them too much 
time on their hands to get into every evil imaginable. The less they worked, the worse they became. And in America, I think we can see this, the less we work, the worse we become. Work is good for us. Now, 50 or 60 years ago, we became a welfare state. And what's that done for us? No good has come from it. Class warfare has come from it. Trillions of dollars of debt has come from it. And now you've got the president and Congress saying, well, let's give away some more. Let's just give away some more. Let's make it easier not to work. Just take money away from workers and give it to people who won't work. And they say, oh, no, this is really the best thing to do because we're helping the middle class. We're helping the poor. You know who provides the most tax money to run the government and pay for social programs? You, the middle class, the working people. Well, if the government gives everything away, who's going to pay for that? You know, this is always the question. Who's going to pay for that? You will. You will. The working class will. I said, no, 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 no. We're going to take it from the rich and from the big corporations, which is really smart. Break the bank of those who provide the jobs and take away all incentive for them to work hard and just give it all away. That's, that's the rule of socialism. It's never been successful. It's never done anything but concentrate wealth in the hands of a few who become the, the dictators that rule the rest. The Bible talks about work. Work is good. The Bible commands work. You know, in the Ten Commandments, it commands you to work. Now it says this, you can't work on the Sabbath. You're not to work on the Lord's Day. But then it says, six days thou shall work. That's not an aside in the, in the commandment. That's just not just a little something that was added on. No, this is a command from God. Six days you shall work. Now, I'm not going to get into, well, well, we got a five-day work week. Probably contributed to a lot of our problems, too. I don't know. Uh, I mentioned this before. The Bible never says anything about retirement. Did you know that? only time it talks about retirement is for a priest who reached 50 years old in Israel. He was allowed to retire. Nobody else gets to retire. You can chew on that for a little while. Decide, you can decide whether you like that or not. But the Bible says, six days you shall work. So Paul said, if you don't work, you don't eat. The commandments say you shall work. Now I want us to look at verse 10 again. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Is that too harsh? Is it too harsh? Well, I want you to be very careful about what you're reading. Read it closely. If any would not work, neither should he eat. The issue here is willingness to work. If anyone is... Not willing to work, he shouldn't eat. So we're not talking about people that are sick. And and we're not speaking of the helpless and the infirm and the disabled. Not people who want to work, but the government won't let them work. We're talking here about people who are unwilling to work. We must have compassion on people who can't work. Have compassion on people that are too sick to work. People that are disabled and they can't work. But that guy who can work and won't, that's a different story. Now the fellow who stands on a street corner with a sign begging for money when there's a store in the shopping center right there with him and says, we need somebody to work. He says, I'm not going to do that. 
well, that fellow doesn't get my money. Now, don't misunderstand. I realize that there is a homeless problem. It's a great problem in our city and across our country. And we have, uh, we have some people that would work if they could get jobs. They, they may be living in tents or whatever. They'd love to have a home. Maybe circumstances aren't working for them. They, they would work if they could. I'm, I'm not going to address all of that. But I do know this. We have an industry of non-workers. There's an industry. Do you understand the word that I'm using? There's an industry of non-workers. They just will not work. Now, I, I remember seeing a news story just not long ago that they were interviewing a fellow, and he said, why should I work? Because he was getting plenty of money standing on the street corner. People were just giving him money, and he just said, why should I work? So he has this cardboard sign that's all worn on the edges so that it looks destitute. Now, don't get me wrong. Again, we have a homeless problem. I do understand that. People, some people are poor. They're down and out. The Bible commands... Well, we read it in Deuteronomy. The poor will always be in the land. There will always be poor people. And we must be compassionate on poor people who can't help themselves. But now we're living in a second and third generation of those who have grown up in a welfare state. And they've learned that work is bad. That if you keep crying, if you just cry loud enough, then somebody will give you something for nothing. And that you have a right to something for nothing. Now, I mentioned this the last time we got on this. Uh, we were studying First Thessalonians. We're in the same subject. And I mentioned a, um, another interview that I heard uh, some time ago. Well, this is back when, when they had the, uh, Hurricane Katrina came through New Orleans. And uh, they had a news crew that was out just interviewing people in, in their homes about uh, how hard things were for them. Well, the, the news crew pulled up to this one place, and there's some people that some, I, I suppose that they were volunteers that were out cleaning up debris from the flooding and trying to make the town look nice and get all that up and trying to reconstruct things. And these were volunteer people. They weren't being paid for anything, but they were out there working. So the news crew goes up to this house, knocks on the door, and the fellow comes to the door, and he's just fighting mad. And, and they they ask him about how things were for him, and he's just fighting mad. He wants to vent a little bit, and so he starts to complain about his government check is late. FEMA wasn't on time to get him, to get him his, his check. Now, across the street are all these people out there volunteered to clean up things, and this fellow's in the house with his feet propped up on the couch. Now, what they should have done and said to him, well, they should have put a rake in his hand or a shovel in his hand, kicked him in the rear and out the door and said, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's the way it ought to be. Now, you know, the immediate context of this is the work issue. I, I've, I've expanded that to include the world, the general idea that work is bad, when the Bible says it's not bad, it's good, work is required, Christians ought to work, you ought to stay busy to stay out of trouble. But let's just kind of bring this back in a little bit to this, this main point that I intended to make, and that is the principle of conformity. Now, in this instance, Paul said, you ought to follow us. That is, live by our example. And so his intent here is not to teach just about secular work, 
but also to teach about the Lord's work. And by the way, I want to make you aware, there really isn't a category of secular work. The Bible doesn't know anything about secular work. Now, we use those terms in the church. I'm a minister. I do ministry work. I work for the church. I get paid for the church, by the church, and so I do clergy work. But the rest of you do secular work. No, there isn't any such thing as secular work. All employment is the Lord's employment. Your job is a job for the Lord. Now, turn to Colossians chapter 3. I want to show this to you. And we'll notice the progression in these verses that everything that a Christian does in every area of your life, you are in this for the Lord. Husbands and wives, your married life is for the Lord. Children, you obey your parents because that's for the Lord. Now, notice how this progresses. It progresses to the next phase, which is employment. Colossians 3, verse 17. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Now listen, verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Now pay attention there to verse 22. Paul said servants. A servant is someone who works for someone else. Now in our, in our day, this would be the employer-employee relationship. When you go to work, put in an honest day's work. When your boss leaves the room and he's not watching, the Lord is there. And he is watching. And you are to work. You are to be an exemplary employee. You are to be a model employee. You are to work as though you own the business. And you are to work and give every minute that you're there to make a better workplace and to enjoy the fruits of your labor. Whatever you do, you do it unto the Lord. It's not your employer that's most important. Most important is the Lord who blesses you, the Lord who gave you your health, the Lord who gave you a job. One translation puts it this way. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. The apostle says in everything that you do, you serve the Lord Christ. It's not secular employment. Your work on your job is also ministry employment. So what are you doing there? Why are you there? Well, our purpose in the world as Christians is to show Christ. To show Christ to those around us. You are a witness and you are a testimony and a missionary for the Lord on your job. The Lord put you there. He wants you there. And he wants you to work while you're there. And never bring reproach on his name. You can't win people to the Lord by being a bad employee. You can't win them by being just like them. 
Can you see work is good? Not only does work keep you busy and keep you from being a busy body, but the Lord wants you on your job as another opportunity to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ where otherwise it might never be known. Now, I realize in some places of employment, it's exceedingly difficult to share your faith. Some employers don't let you talk about it. Peter has a good suggestion for those of you that are forbidden to speak in your workplace about your faith. This is what he says. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Now, he's telling you that your life should be so different and you conduct your life so differently that you don't look like and act like people that are around you. People see a difference. And so they, they will ask, why do you live this way? Why, why do you have hope when things look so bad? Why don't you complain all the time? Why... Why are you upbeat? Why are you always smiling? Why are you this way? Why are you happy at work? Why do you take pride in what you do, the accomplishment of your job? What makes you different? Peter says, when they ask, be ready to give the answer. And what is your answer? I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. I belong to him. I am a Christian. My sins are forgiven. I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. I'm working for the Lord on my job, and I'm serving Him. Now, there are many reasons the Bible says that work is good. It's good for you. It's good for those that meet you. It's good for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Well, let me go back and talk a little bit more, just a a minute here, about conformity. In our text, we see the disorderly, the unruly. These are people that hurt the church. They're not of the same mind as those that are faithful. Now, for the church to work, we must come together with the same goals. This is not what the world says. The world says, be your own person. Do your own thing. Be different from everybody. You go, girl. You, you, you beat to the beat of a different drummer. That's not what the Bible says. That's not in the church. In the church, individualism is the outcast. We don't need and neither do we want oddball people. Now, I mean in the sense that they just can't get in step with the rest of us. We don't need that. We have to be uniform to work for the Lord. Now, I don't mean that we all have to dress the same way. Although, I will say, if your dress, if your hair, if your body, if your attitude draws undue attention to you, then you've got it wrong. This is not about you. And we all don't have to like football. Although if you like soccer, you should repent, get right with the Lord. But those are things that, Jorge, those are things that we can differ about. But this is not about individualism. The church is about conformity. It's about uniformity. Is it conformity to me? Well, Paul didn't even say that. He didn't say conform to me. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. So this all heads up to Jesus Christ. It's conformity to him being molded in his image. Now, let me quickly give you some verses on uniformity. 
uh, Romans 15, verses 5 to 7. Now, the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus. Let me just stop there just a second. When he says one mouth and one mind, he doesn't mean you as an individual. you got one mouth and one mind. No, it means all of you collectively as the church, with one mouth and one mind, you speak the same thing. Wherefore, receive you one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians thirteen eleven. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Philippians 1.27, Only let your conversation, that your way of life, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 2, 2-5, Fulfill you my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on their own things, but every man on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. First Peter 3, 8 and 9. Finally, be ye all of one mind having compassion one of another, love as brethren. Be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. And then let's just hear this last part about unity of the faith from Ephesians 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now these thoughts bring us to the point at hand in this text. Some are disorderly, some are unruly, some upset the unity of the church, and whatever upsets the common cause of like faith and holiness and sanctification must be stopped. And so therefore, Paul begins our passage, our text, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Now, do you see that? This is given by command. It's not optional. The apostle never comes to people and say, how do you feel about this? Mm, how's this strike you? You think maybe, maybe if I said this, this would be good for you? Can I ask your opinion about this? No, this, this is a command. Now, when Paul speaks, he speaks under the authority of Jesus Christ. He commands in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the authority to tell the church what to do. And I will say that what the Apostle Paul orders here is almost never done. Churches don't do it because they think they have a better way. They think we must be nicer. That's kind of the reason why I prefaced all of my remarks with, I understand what the Bible says about being nice and about being kind, compassion towards people. So they said, well, we just got to be nicer. Uh, 
we're doing people a favor if we tolerate their dissent and their refusal to live sanctified lives. We don't want to upset anybody. And so churches never enforce this and the church just fills up with unholy, sinful people. Well, we're going to talk about that. Next time we're going to take up church discipline. I've told you many times we're committed to preaching through everything in the Bible. So we take it verse by verse. We're not going to skip over unpopular parts. And we will not make excuses for God and try to make God better than he is as if we could. But that's what many people think. Let's mold God into our image and he will be better than he is. No, we're, we're true Christians. We are seeking our best to be conformed to Christ's image. And when we are conformed to Christ, we will be like him and we will be like each other. That's the consequence of unity of the faith. When we're all conformed to Christ, we are no longer individuals. We are the body of Christ. Let's remember that. Now, next time then, church discipline. What are the steps to it? How does it work? What's accomplished in the church? What's done for the, for the church and the individual? See, here, here, every member of Brian Baptist Church, when you become a member, you agree to the discipline of the church. Discipline is not punishment. We need to understand that. Discipline is not punishment. Discipline is discipling. It's conforming to the image of Christ. Forming and conforming to the image of Christ. Now, one last word. You see in verse 6, the apostle says, Our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord That's the key to all of this. That word is curios. It means the one who is in authority, the one who controls, the one we are to obey. And there is no one who is saved who doesn't agree that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you again. We thank you, Lord, for your word and the instructions that we receive from it. We know that this is best for us. Because it's in your word. If we just follow the word, then we will be sanctified and holy. We will be what you want us to be. We will be conformed to your son, Jesus Christ. Help our people today, Lord. Maybe some things that are, I've said, might upset some. We don't intend to do that, not purposely. But if truth upsets, then we have to be content with it. So, Lord, we ask that you help us today and give us a good week as we go out from this place to serve and honor you in all things that we do. May each of us remember going to our employment that we are there because you put us there to be your ambassadors to this world. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Groner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.